I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. Candy Men. Have you ever heard of Candy Man? If you look in the mirror, you say his name five times. In cities everywhere. Candy Man? They whisper his name. Right. Candy Man. It's just a story. Candy Man. Candyman. Just a ghost story. Candyman. An entire community starts attributing the daily horrors of their lives to a mythical figure. The legend first appeared in 1890. He was attacked, mutilated, and burned to death. Poor Candyman. Helen, a woman died in there. Leave it. Everyone knows he isn't real. That's modern oral folklore. Everyone. Except Helen Lyle. Bring it up. It ain't safe around here. I don't scare too easy. Wanna know about Ruthie Jane? They ain't never gonna catch him. Who? Candyman. Who is that? I came for you. Do I know you? She is about to discover. Helen, get out! Get out! What's behind the mystery? I'm sick. What's behind the legend? Listen, he's under the bed! And most terrifying of all, come with me. What's behind the mirror? He's here. to believe. Just beware. Welcome back to the show, our very good friends, Karen Nagisa. Hello there. And Debbie Morse. Hello. Of Sequentially Yours. Now, this is a show we've been wanting to do for a long, long time. And as you listen, the reasons why we had to wait will become clear. Our estimation of the original, even though we held it in high regard, changed the moment we saw the new take, just as I hoped it would, or at least mine did. And so on this episode, we are talking about both the 1992 film directed by Bernard Rose and starring Virginia Madsen and the 2021 film directed by Naya DaCosta and starring Yahya Abdul-Mateen II. And we are going to cover each in turn. In part one, we will not spoil what happens in the new movie, or we will not talk about it. So when we reach the end of that first story, there'll be a break and some music, and you can put the show on pause and go see it. And I've been speaking to people throughout the week to, you know, uh, recommending this film, and they're like, well, I haven't seen the original either. So if you've seen neither, you can listen to the whole show, I, I'd say. And again, I think it's going to make your viewing better, because your eye for detail will be sharpened. But we heartily recommend that you see both either before or after this show. In terms of horror, they are both highly memorable and skillfully made. In terms of addressing real-life historical evils, the first is somewhat confused and hamstrung. The second, I have specifically waited for Jordan Peele to produce pretty much since the day I saw Get Out, and I wanted to see it made like this in a more nebulous sense for many years preceding that moment. 
and the second one goes for the throat and it knows exactly what it's doing as it reframes the legend and the narrative to where it should always have been. And I would say these two films are a dyad there. Oh, wow, I finally used that word, which they pulled out of their asses during the last Star Wars. And they're like, you are a forced dyad. What does that mean? Nothing really. No, it's a duo. I've been saying to people, oh, you can probably just, like, if you haven't seen the original, you can just just watch this one. I would say the new one is considerably stronger and knows where it's going more, whereas the first is trying to reconcile quite a lot of things that are at war with one another. But seeing them in tandem, the second makes the first better. Also, to spice things up a little more, we are going to try not to say the name of this character, of either of these films, which are both called the same thing, confusingly. See, I I joked with uh, Willow that they should make five films, so three more sequels, and call each of them the same thing. And when you go see the last one, it kills you. But... (laughs) Um, but like, I just I feel like if ever like just just try and work around the word and uh, like it'll just sort of there'll be tension there and if someone says it we have to number that so like we stop the whole podcast if we get to five <laughs> that's that's what we're, that's what we're up against folks also it's it's worth noting that there are two rubbish sequels that t- uh, were filmed in the 90s and uh, I think Tony Todd was in them both uh, and they uh, sort of expand on the mythology but in a very lazy way and do not have to be seen ever don't even read the synopsis it's just like they may as well not exist uh, kind of the same way a lot of the Halloween films just don't need to have ever happened if you're like uh, H20 uh, Halloween 7 uh, is a great follow-up to Halloween's 1 and 2 and uh, Halloween 11 is another great follow-up to Halloween 1 but not 2 <laughs> Uh, but they both cancel each other out, and and you like we're now in an era where you you actually have to disregard certain things as non-canon, uh, because mainly because we are living in a post-rubbish sequel world <laughs> where we're kind of we're not past sequels being rubbish by any means, but we're definitely in an area where filmmakers are like let's just forget those if that makes sense. So, <clears throat> farewell to the flesh. Almost said it there, and. Uh, Day of the Dead, a pair of crappy 90s sequels with straight-to-video sensibilities. Ignore. Avoid. Going to give us an hour for the first one and an hour for the second one. Hopefully we'll be done on both in less time than that. Is that cool? An hour for the first what and an hour for the second what, Alex? <laughs> the f- uh, I'm going to call them Film 1 and Film 2. <laughs> you bastard. Right, um... Okay. So this actually is based all the way back to a short story written by Clive Barker, who wrote Hellraiser. It was originally set in Liverpool. Sharon actually read me this whole thing today while we were studying up, uh, and it was called The Forbidden, and it is not about race at all. And it's 
remarkably similar in terms of kind of what happens. The outcome is very different, and the themes of the film were very much expanded upon. This is a, a very slim short story with a kind of a fuck you ending. Uh, but it's about a woman named Helen Lyle who goes investigating graffiti on walls and finds that there's been grisly murders that are being seemingly committed by some kind of phantasmic creation that sort of exists in mythology and she digs and digs and eventually finds some really nasty stuff it involves straight up infanticide and Clive Barker does not sh flinch on describing it in a bit too much detail and it's a depressing read there's some good florid use of language it's very dark it feels a bit Stephen King as with a lot of uh, short stories it feels like kind of a half-formed idea that could definitely be fleshed out and what happened with the movie is uh, the director, Bernard Rose, took this short story and wrote a script. So the script was written by the same, by the director. So he was interpreting Barker's nightmare through the lens of what he was trying to write. Now, we listened to the Bernard Rose and Tony Todd commentary today on our pristine uh, Arrow video version of this first film. Almost said it again. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, he's a bit of a character. He, he made two really insightful uh, comments on horror, which I'll go into, and then started uh, hand-waving a lot of modern horrors as uh, as garbage and uh, saying <sighs> he doesn't watch uh, any of the sequels. I think he's sort of talking about everything that happened in the meantime and during the 90s and, like, he was being disparaging. He doesn't like CG, doesn't like scary face stuff, um, but he d he never stopped to praise in particular detail, some of the absolute cream of horror that we've had in the past 10 years. He seemed very interested in, like, 70s horror and, um, you know, like, the originators yeah, of, of what, horror. Yeah, what he was Carpenter, referring to classic horror. He was talking about The Exorcist. Mm. Obviously not the originators of horror, but definitely the originators of what we see as the beginnings of a wave of horror that is still going. When, because it was the 70s, directors were permitted to be more explicit, more extreme, and show us things that scared us more. He did briefly mention A Quiet Place and Get Out, both of which he... He liked Get Out, but he used... Uh, he mentioned... Uh, Tony Todd mentioned A Quiet Place, and Bernard immediately disparaged it oh, and went, right. oh, it was full of plot oh. holes you could drive a truck through. Okay, sorry, I thought he was saying All that right, he appreciated it generally in spite of the plot mm. holes. But okay, Either way, maybe not. he's a cat. But what I'm getting to is um, Tony started talking to him about the racial elements and describing... He said the lynching thing... Thing has kind of come back and Tony started to school him on atrocity and he said oh um, I, I read there was uh, 4,000 lynchings and Tony very quietly uh, said that there were many many more than that and, uh, and I think it was like 100,000 over a very 80, long 80,000 over a very long stretch and Bernard had the temerity to say, well, I read in a magazine it was 4,000 between the years of this and this. And it's like, dude, you have got to shut up. You white British dude. Now, we are white and like, like we are not necessarily in any way qualified to talk about black history. Uh, it's stuff that I've studied for my own book series. But again, I am, I'm an outsider from a different country of a different ethnicity. I have not, this is not a lived experience for me. 
But watching the original film, I felt a little uncomfortable originally when I saw it because I wasn't I wasn't quite sure. It felt a little bit from the outside. And then in the subsequent years, I've you know been I thought that there was a lot more of Clive Barker in this than there actually was. In terms of structural, what happens? Yes, but in terms of bringing it to America as opposed to Liverpool and England and making it about race rather than class. Race rather than class. It's it's race and class. Yeah, I was going to say I think that the fundamentals of mm. it are that in the short story is about social deprivation or, or one of the very strong themes to it is social deprivation yeah. and the, uh, the the trauma and the tragedy that can occur in that kind mm. of environment. You cannot transplant a story about social deprivation to America mm. without bringing very, Ethnicity, very strong uh, racial elements into You've it. You've either got to shoot it in the ghetto or the barrio. And uh, they they elected to shoot it in uh, a place. Is, is Cabrini Green real? This is one thing I probably should yes. have looked at. Yes. Okay. Yes, Cabrini Green is real. It was. It doesn't exist anymore. It was a housing project in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, the show Good Times took place in Cabrini Green. Right. I did notice when I went back to see the original again after we'd seen the uh, new one. Like the actual the 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 place where the bonfire takes place at the end of the uh, movie and the uh, church is absolutely that 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 same area and that turns up in the new one. Again, that's all I'm going to say about the new one. Going to keep that gated off until we actually get there. But yeah, Cabrini Green is a place where black people live. It is impoverished. There's uh, there were real life uh, uh, gangs uh, on the street when they were filming and they sort of let them be in the movie because it sort of added flavor and production value. And yeah, they, they come across as, as actually fairly human in the, actual, the, the way it's put across. But there's, uh, there's depictions of uh, uh, black people throughout the movie where you get nice black people and you get nasty black people. And the Phantom himself, the titular character who will not be named, and his choice of victim and how and who he attacks, a lot of it is apocryphal in that we're hearing it from other people. I heard this happened. Uh, But sometimes we actually see it straight up happen. And it feels like if this is a commentary on American black-on-black violence, then it is clumsy. And listening to what Bernard Rose said, it's clumsy. (laughs) For folks who haven't seen the uh, film, uh, the plot runs thus. A lady named Helen Lyle is studying... Is is she studying urban legends? Yeah, she's a graduate student, and she's writing a thesis on urban legends. Yeah, and she's she's married to a man named Trevor Lyle, played by Xander Berkeley, uh, who I'm going to say it just once, because I get to... I, I, I say it every time I see him on screen in anything... Uh, he was the st- uh, foster father in Terminator 2. She's not my mother, Todd. So I'm just going to say, shut up, you useless piece of shit. That's what he yells at the dog. And that just stuck in my brain forever. So every time I see him... No matter what kind of character he's playing, every time we see him, that's what we expect He could be an anti-apartheid activist. And I just yell, shut up, you useless piece of shit, as soon as he turns up. <laughs> In the story, does that explain where the moniker comes from? No. Uh, the titular name for the character. Yes. 
Yes, exactly. It doesn't, exactly. no. Although when he turns up, he apparently smells of candy floss. And uh, it, it sounded like Bertie Bassett was attacking her, a giant sweet man. He's, <laughs> he's described in a manner that suggests somebody who is has a clown-like appearance and the local people appear to be leaving sweets for him as sacrificial offerings. Sweets oh. to the sweet. Indeed. Oh, okay. But there's there's something okay. about him that feels very like Pennywise. Yeah, it's uh, th- there's a more of a Pennywise feel in the original story. Uh, and he, he sort of talks about himself in a philosophical way. And, and many of the lines directly get into the movie. I am the writing on the wall. Mm. I am the whisper in the classroom. Yeah, he, he feels a little bit like a local god that has to be placated. Mm. Uh, and uh, Kim Newman, who okay. did one of the other uh, uh, commentaries on this, uh, along with um, Stephen Jones, uh, commented that he was a bit of a Willy Wonka character. I'm like, what the hell, Willy Wonka? Have you been watching? But either way, the the whole like his the hook was new, wasn't it? Um, did they mention the hook? I think he does have. Does Barker mention the hook? Here's the thing: you get through that whole story, and the hook is not really properly mentioned. If, okay, if it was, if if I don't remember it, yeah. it was obviously not particularly prominent. This would be because for the first film, they made him a conglomeration of urban legends. So you get some Bloody Mary in there, where you look in the mirror and say her name, and there's the hook-handed psycho. And even the story at the beginning about the babysitter is very reminiscent of the call was coming from inside the house. Well, the chest cavity and the bees. Yeah, the, the chest actually. cavity and the bees, that's all totally there. And uh, right. the offer that he makes to Helen, the, uh, uh, you know, uh, you will be immortalized through notoriety. Um, that's there. In the film, there is a lot more of a people need to talk about me so that I can be. That without these, I am nothing. It's um, Freddy Krueger went through that as well in some of the later Nightmare on Elm Street uh, um, sequels. And uh, watching yeah. uh, the new film really underlines how, how lazy some of the, the, the sequeling was. With it. And just listening to the synopses of Farewell to the Flesh and Day of the Dead. It just reminded me of many of the lazy Halloween sequels where they're like, we are catering to an audience that we despise as opposed to let's make a really good story because ultimately some of the best horror, and we've said this many times before, and I think you were on our Halloween show, uh, actually, some of the best horror comes from the writers and the direct. Like if if a, a director gets to write their own horror, they can bring you their nightmares, and they can. It, there's there's a sense of of being able to convey and let you into their mind. That was a lot of how Barker and King operated in in the novels in the 80s. The the the, the frisson was open this book and you are let inside this dark mind, mm. which can obviously become um Garth Marenghi levels of pretentious at times, but um, and in his defense, I know I authors who use subtext and they're all cowards. Yeah, that's the one. Tina screamed for nurse, but little Miss Nurse didn't come. Little Miss Nurse was out in the back room having a cigarette and flirting with Doctor. The pain shot through her like a big bullet. She knew babies were meant to kick, but were they meant to scratch? No, they weren't. Salutations, friend. I'm Garth Marenghi, horror writer, although I prefer the term dreamweaver. In his defence, I think... Whose defence? In Bernard Rose's defence, yeah. because he wrote and directed this. Mm. 
while I don't necessarily think he is bringing his own personal fears to this, he is certainly bringing his own personal fascinations. He doesn't think of Robitaille as being an out-and-out monstrous villain. Mm. In fact, they were pushing for some, for, for more, which we'll talk uh, about later, to, yeah. that would have actually made him somewhat sympathetic. Studio didn't like that. Okay, Helen is looking into urban legends. Her shitty husband is uh, teaching urban legends and kind of eats all the pie quickly and, and, and talks to the class about uh, uh, it before she's gotten her paper published. So she's kind of cheesed off at him. There's a really neat moment where she's talking to him in his class and a bunch of his students are hanging around and he uh, points to a, a girl named Stacy uh, and, and introduces her and Stacy's eyes linger on him and as soon as he says her name he kind of pauses for a moment worried he's given something away which is like it's a neat bit of like Willow immediately went he's stooping her and I was like well done because it was just it's <laughs> it's it's like it, he he's clearly a scumbag and uh, he he, he well, does he's Xander Berkeley he's Xander Berkeley yeah, yeah. Totally, yeah he's screwing around yeah, I, behind Helen's back the second his name shows up in the credits I'm like and of course, knowing what you know, what happens in the movie, I'm like, well, honey, you you married Xander Berkeley. What else did you expect? Yeah, where, yeah, where where did you see this going? <laughs> when did he say nice things to you? Because here's the other thing, and uh, I think um, Kim Newman mentioned this as well, like. His idea of a relationship is you do all the cooking love, you do all the painting love, I'm going to be in this room in my bathrobe doing fuck all. Mm, absolutely. But it, one thing that struck me about the, the short story was that she only ever refers to him, like they're married, they've been married for mm. a couple of years, and she only ever refers to him as somebody who she loathes being around. Oh, yeah. like He's going out and to, to, to fuck people behind her back, and she's like, yeah, off he goes. And like she knows about it in the uh, the short story, but in this, Virginia Madsen brings to, uh, a certain level of uh, naivety. Naivety, but she's so passionate as well. So she's uh, investigating this impoverished area to see what these urban legends are, because she's heard tell of a ghoulish. Tales to tell in the dark that uh, when the babysitter says his name five times in the mirror, he appears and kills you. And that's the hook, so to speak, at the beginning that they get you with. And that traumatizes Ted Raimi. Yeah, that's brand new. That was what Bernard Rose brought uh, to this. And I think the hook for a hand comes from the like the various other urban legends. Urban Legend, the film with... Um, Rebecca Gayhart in it that came out just after Scream is like a really shit version of this with the whole masked killer thing jammed in there in that it's it's all about sort of dark fairy tales that we tell each other. They're just like mini verbal horror stories to tell around a campfire. So she's investigating this with her uh, best friend Bernadette who is a woman and who is black. And she's also like similarly middle class, same as... Um, Helen. And I'm like, my God, if you're the black best friend in a horror movie in the 90s, you may as well just shoot yourself in the head in real one to save yourself the pain of later on. She's not in the short story. They created this character to kill her. And the fact that she's black, I think, was more of a a case of, see, not all black people are criminals. Some of them are quite well to do. Again, clumsy. But um, but also it illustrates, see, Helen's not racist. She has a black friend. So it's a twofer. Apparently, uh, Bernard Rose did get some 
input from Casey Lemon, who mm. plays Bernadette, yeah. in terms of the um, the optics when they go mm. down to the project to start asking people questions. So he did at least have somebody giving him some information there that was more than he was able okay. to bring to the table himself. I yeah I do really like um, the dynamic between the two actresses because I buy they have good chemistry I mm-hmm. buy that they're friends and like they feel their interactions feel natural they feel like they, they feel like they've been friends for a while yeah. and, you know and I I also like the fact that of the their different reactions to them going into the projects mm-hmm. even when it's brought up. Helen Lyle, who's who's clearly you know more naive, is seems less afraid and more willing to go in there, and it's it's an interesting commentary. I think a little probably unintentional, at least on Bernard Rose's part, but on Bernadette is much less willing mm. to you know to go in the first place, and then when when you know Helen talks her into it, then to interact with people, especially. Um, the the mother it's Anne Marie yeah Anne Marie is the is Anne Marie McCoy yeah the 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 mom of the baby and the fact that um, it it does make for an interesting contrast the fact that Virginia Madsen is you know very willing to um, you know to just to speak to her and you know they have that little nice interaction of ooing and awing over the baby and just a just a very small connection there of like showing that Helen is a kind person. Hmm. Yeah. And but she also has a certain amount of privilege armor that she is so used to being reasonably safe wherever she goes mm. that she doesn't quite understand the danger that she's in the, until she does. Until the, she does the thing. Mm. <laughs> oh, uh, the Debbie, mirror. you used the word interesting twice there. And oh, did you know that I... if you say interesting five times in front of a mirror, then I appear and chase you around the garden <laughs> with a bit of wood. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely right but no you, you did well because you actually explained why it was interesting again I was listening to Kim Newman's commentary and they said interesting 700 times and it was just that's interesting and, it was just, and then stopped it's a really oh. interesting that, that film is really interesting but they didn't explain why and it's like all you have to do is say one thing about why it's interesting then it's okay but if you just say it's interesting mm. it's like saying but I won't go into that mm. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just to, to follow on from what you were saying but there, Kauru, um, the through a certain lens, Helen does come across as somebody who is carrying a degree of entitlement with her. She thinks that because she is white, because she's educated, because she looks relatively wealthy and she's dressed conservatively and is therefore going to be... She fits into that model of who is safe and protected by the authorities around here. She can go where she wants, she can talk to whoever she wants, she can ask questions about whatever she wants without having to think too much about what she is potentially stirring up. At the very beginning, we get uh, the uh, legend of the man uh, told to us about, again, it's the babysitter. It's a very similar story to the babysitter where the call's coming from in the house. But um, the girls decided to romance Ted Raimi, of all, of all people, who turns up in a leather jacket like, hey, babe. <laughs> yes, because when we think about rebellious teenagers, Ted Raimi is the first person oh, who immediately. springs to mind. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So, yeah, he's down there in his... It, with Doc R. <laughs> he's down there in his leather jacket. He's hip, he's now, he's wow, and, and how. how. 
<laughs> and uh, he's rocking and rolling and whatnot. And she says the name five times in the mirror and can't... Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he appears and kills her. Again, it's this story being told to um, Helen, and she's like, not really. But Helen shows uh, her best friend how she's now living in a, uh, a neighborhood that they've effectively kind of papered over the walls of a previously poor neighborhood. Well, they, they copied the Cabrini Green apartment block style yeah. in this same location, intending to turn it into a similar style project. <laughs> And she pushes, she opens the back of her medicine cabinet and shows that there is, in fact, another medicine cabinet behind it and just pushes that through to the vacant apartment behind her. And it's dark in there and her friend's very skittish. And it starts to immediately make us think about, like, something's in the walls. Something is behind these. And and this has just been painted over. Uh, again, that is a wonderful theme, a dark, wonderful theme that comes yeah. back in the new film, Wonderful and terrible and extremely hard. But uh, again, immediately uh, Willow said, okay, so so and so's going to smash his hook through that mirror later on. And I was like, oh, maybe. And it totally happened. Um, oh, yeah. It, uh, which is odd considering that apparently those mirrors are indestructible. Oh, right. I was a little bugged by uh, the sound editor who forgot to put breaking glass when she pushed out the mirror on the other side. Oh, yeah, of course. It, it's a medicine cabinet, but it should have a mirror on it. Yeah, good point. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, that, that bugged me. I, it's, it, I know it's stupid, mm. but it just did. <laughs> I hear that. I'm like, why is that mirror so very fortified? Well, it's it's got the invincibility uh, on it. Um, uh, if you can't see a mirror, then it, it's not there it's not to real. be broken. <laughs> Um, that was actually uh, one of the two things that uh, Bernard Rose said that I was like, wow, that's a really fine point. He was talking about how horror now, they can do so much more with sound. The original sounds uh, on, on 35mm prints were um, much more... Kind of, like it was, originally it was mono and then stereo scope and, and it... Um, like as we go on and and, and the sound, uh, you know, the, the scapes become more and more diverse, we can actually start giving tiny little sounds to the audience to make them unconsciously nervous. And James Wan has James Wan has made a career on using sound to enhance his visuals. Yeah. Yeah. That actually ties directly into um, something that I'm going to say later while we're talking about film two regarding styles of communicating horror concepts. Yeah, okay. Uh, And uh, so, yeah, they're they're in the the projects in Cabrini Green trying to get information on the man that we uh, know about. And, and, you know, uh, how come you residents talk about this this character and, like, you actually do actually believe this? And Vanessa Williams turns up at her uh, door and with a Rottweiler dog, ferociously at them and just glares at them and and then shuts the door again in a kind of get the fuck out of here kind of way which is you know what understandable some some middle class white woman comes around asking questions you immediately start thinking I might get evicted or or, or like who the fuck is coming around here specifically pointed out as dressed like a cop yeah and uh, yeah they get accused of being cops by the uh, uh, the gang members outside yeah 
Bernadette also says you dressed like a cop. Bingo. Yeah. Or at least a detective, just someone, yeah. you know, she's she's not very good at um, hiding the fact that she's very well to do. However, again, this doesn't play against uh, Helen as a character. She does still come off as someone who gives a shit. She rarely come, like, I don't think I can really recall a time where, like, Helen, why are you doing this? It's, at worst, it's naive. It's never um, in, out of any kind of um, uh, negative feeling. However, she gets told a story, another apocryphal tale, by a little boy who's really serious. And uh, he's a great little actor, and... He describes, and again, this was described in in uh, the uh, Clive Barker um, story, but by an old woman here, a young kid who really needed to use the bathroom and, and the public restroom ran in there. Apparently, he was not all there or uh, developmentally uh, challenged. And then the kid then describes the most sickening response of screaming that came from there. And like a strong man ran in and then just ran out, uh, you know, white as a sheet because of what had happened in there. What the small boy implies is, at least he believes, Candyman ripped Uh-oh. this kid. Oh, shit! That's one. Yeah, that's one. Uh. Ah. <clears throat> the little kid believes that... The man. No, it's not the man. It's the opposite of the man. Yeah. Sammy Davis Jr.? No. <laughs> the little the kid believes that our revenant Ooh. committed grievous harm on this child and ripped his dick off. And then he then uh, adds, can't fix that, better off dead, which is word for word what this old lady said. <laughs> and it's yeah. like, ah, I mean, that's... Eh. Okay, fair enough. But again, this made me think, I actually don't think that that happened. At least I believed that for a long, long time. It just seems incredibly cruel and specifically targeting the innocent. But then that becomes more difficult to excuse with a a specific, very similar death for a young child in a toilet in the new one where you can't just go, well, that didn't happen, because you literally see the perpetrator is the man himself. This uh, public toilet is absolutely disgusting. It's got graffiti everywhere. It would appear that everything's written in shit. And uh, Helen goes snooping in there in a kind of, oh, it's so gross and disgusting. I'm like, yes, get out as soon as you can. And then the most... right. I I can sort of understand maybe the kid summoned him and it's a summoning spell. And Willow was asking, how does it work then? What if I, like, I think uh, Willow was uh, uh, quoting various TikTokers who are basically that guy in Gremlins 2 was like, if you feed a gremlin a hamburger at 11 o'clock and he gets a sesame seed caught in his teeth and then it comes out at 1 1 a.m. Now, he didn't eat that after midnight. And then Mohawk turns up and punches him in the face (laughs) for being pedantic. But effectively, what I told Willow is what I believe to be the case. It is a summoning spell... It is a ritual. It requires intention. You have to know about it. You can't just be like, if you didn't know about this summoning, if you were just writing an an article about him and you said it five times and there was a mirror there, it still wouldn't count. You have to have the intention behind it, which is why at the end, a similar spell only gets uttered four times and a new revenant still appears. Yeah. It uh, reminds me a little bit of uh, Hellraiser 2, mm. where you had the character who 
has Down syndrome, she's highly autistic, mm-hmm. and she solves the puzzle box, but the Cenobites don't go after her because she has no idea what she's doing. Yeah, she to her it was like a fancy purpose. Rubik's Cube. Yeah. Exactly. It's just yeah. a thing that she was doing. The irony is that summoning spell isn't in the Forbidden. Like, it's it's not there. She's investigating this thing, that this, this creature, that this ghost, this thing, this force that's being talked about, this almost like an old forgotten god. And he is evoked specifically by her talking about him and asking questions about mm. him. And that triggering the people of Spectre Street, which is where it's set, mm. to also talk oh. about him, which they are not supposed to do. Right. Subtle. So um, what then happens is uh, <laughs> Helen's in this toilet snooping around and a black square-jawed... A fairly charismatic drug dealer turns up pretending to be the man himself, like even down to like carrying a giant hook around with him. And he says that she needs to stop snooping around. And to punctuate this, he smashes her in the face with the blunt side of this hook, causing like the it immediately cuts to the next scene and it's a police lineup and they're all stepping forward and repeating the same lines he said. And then it cuts back to Helen and she's got like. Half of her face is a pizza. It's just, it's so swollen. And I was saying to Sharon, especially now, I genuinely don't believe that a drug dealer would smash her in the face to get her to go away. He would either say, get the fuck out of here and intimidate her because then she can't do much about that. She can't like call the police and say, a black man said, get out of here to me. And I did. Or kill her. But, like, this is the worst thing because she can't go back to where she lives and hide that. Like, you are literally asking the police to come down. And we now know that when the police are summoned, just the worst things are going to happen. So this bit does not make any kind of sense to me. Yeah. And we know that this guy is supposedly so incredibly clever that he has avoided leaving enough evidence for the police Mm. for years like they know he's behind things but haven't been able to prove it and then suddenly he attacks a white woman yeah i think he's the one who uh ripped that kid's dick off frankly yeah Yeah. and yeah it seemed i mean it seems like it sounds like this drug dealer has been using this legend to his own advantage Mm. to build up his own cred basically and like build up his own reputation for quite some time the irony is it it actually feels like um like in most other films he himself would then be killed but then he he goes off to relax okay he's going to jail this immediately happens in the yeah in the white people's version of events and we never see him again but it just it feels like that was an opportunity missed but um from this point onwards She's, like, going around a car park, and then the man himself makes himself known to her, and it's Tony Todd's amazing voice, but conveyed through sound in a way that's very, very close, and uh, kind of just drowns out everything else around uh, her. So it's almost like a, a hallucinatory sequence where he's at the far end of a car park in broad daylight. So many of these attacks happen in broad daylight in a way that makes you feel like just afraid to be alone in a bad area or even just uh, a liminal space. 
as opposed to, uh, you know, the, the terrors that come in the night. Helen. Yes? Helen. Who is that? Helen, I came for you. Do I know you? No. No. But you doubted me. I'm sorry, I have to go. No need to leave yet. But I'm late. You are not content with the stories. So I was obliged to come. Be my victim. Be my victim. I am the writing on the wall, the whisper in the classroom. Without these things, I am nothing. So now I must shed innocent blood. And what he has in store for her is particularly grisly and unpleasant. She wakes up covered in blood in uh, Vanessa Williams' uh, house. And the baby is gone from the crib. There's blood everywhere. It's on the walls, on the ceiling, all over the kitchen. And Marie McCoy attacks Helen with a meat cleaver, uh, screaming that her baby's gone. And uh, Helen stupidly takes the meat cleaver and hits her in the arm, almost to say, now calm down, <laughs> and immediately incriminates herself. The Rottweiler has been decapitated, no sign of the baby anywhere. At this point, again, it feels this feels slightly more believable, but there's still question marks over it, in that the police turn up and they don't immediately shoot Anne-Marie McCoy for attacking a, 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 yeah. a well-to-do white woman they, in her own home. They do grab her and they do initially appear to think that she's the person mm. to go for first. It's only when they realise that Helen is still holding the meat cleaver yeah. and is covered in blood. But then Helen is treated very horribly by the police. There's a, there's a weird kind of... Like, uh, she's she's forced to strip in front of a woman who is coded as a uh, butch lesbian uh, cop. And it's it's almost like she's getting a power trip out of it. And it's like, yeah, this is this is what white people suffer from all the time uh, at, the, at the mercy of these cops. So the movie is more preoccupied with, oh, poor innocent white lady. Which illustrates what audience this was being filmed for. The fact that the baby isn't anywhere to be found leaves the case very much hanging. And Helen is by this point very tired, uh, in the grip of, of grief and, and, and uh, freaking out. And then fairly soon after, does she get committed immediately? No. No. No, that's after. Oh, no, so she, she just goes home uh, on probation. She's released on bail. Yeah. Then Candy... Ma then yeah. she, there's that incident with the it's mirror. It's all going to be you. He turns up again. <laughs> yeah. He turns up again. I'm trying to contextualize. He turns I... up again. And uh, again, it's it's with the be my victim talk. And uh, it's very kind of weirdly sexualized the way he's um, uh, treated. It's a strange kind of dark seduction. I say weirdly sexualized. Ultimately... He starts kind like of nudging her in, in the skirt with his hook 
in a very uh, squeamish, uh, difficult to watch moment. And then her friend Bernadette arrives, who hasn't summoned him at all, and gets butchered. Who I think, uh, again, what you said before, uh, Debbie, about uh, anyone who's in his way. But it's actually very convenient to him to get Helen locked up because that then makes the legend of, of this stuff grow. But I don't understand how... Like, that becomes then the legend of Helen, not the legend of him. The film seems to be implying, but does not does not communicate particularly well is the fact that the reason he is going after her, basically, is she is the reincarnation of the woman he was killed over originally. Mm. And that that's why it's so very sexual and so very, so very, you know, terrifying in that very specific way. Even despite what happens in the end, she is still inextricably linked to the legend. And I think it's talking about her is still in extension of talking about him. Mm. It's sort of like if you talk about one of the knights of the round table, you're also talking about King Arthur. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. On a side note, by the way, this music is scored by Philip Glass, and one of the first things oh, you yes. get oh. in the uh, film. And he doesn't do many films. He did the Truman Show that I know of, and I can't think of any others. Yeah. One of the first things you get to see in the film is uh, it um, sort of pans slowly over the uh, um, the tenement buildings and uh, uh, over the rooftops. And uh, it's, it's a very vertical down, almost Kubrickian shot of, uh, of this urban area. And it's, it's effectively urban Gothic. And, yes. yeah. um, and the second one, the, the, the new film is even more so in that regard. They, they really lean into that, uh, that the new intro sequence, again, this is not uh, spoiling anything is the inverse of what we're seeing here. You're seeing what looks like buildings disappear down into fog or mist. And then you realize after a while your perspective's changed. And what you're actually doing is looking up at buildings as you drift down a street that are disappearing up into the clouds, into the sky. But because your perspective is mirrored, you're getting this strange upside down world feeling. And it's, it's again, the inverse of this with fantastic music that just really kind of gets you on board with what you're about to see. You're absolutely right about the the urban gothic. The if if you think of the concept of gothic stories and gothic horror in particular, they have this sense of place about them and it's often about well if you pen this group of people or even sometimes just this one person mm. into this building that is ancient and huge and carries with it things that are far older than these individuals can comprehend, then you can't expect anything good to come of it. The urban gothic sensibility seems to be, well, if you pen people into this specific area where they have minimal control over what goes on in it and they're surrounded by this multi-layered, multi-generational things which have happened here, you can't expect anything good to come of it. Yeah. And uh, honestly, one of the things that clearly seems to anger the man himself is that Helen has been going around telling this serious kid um, he, he isn't real, that this is, uh, this is just a fairy story, that uh, this um, thing you believe in, this dark terror, is something that's just there to scare you and, and, and there's nothing behind it. And it's that that 
dissipates the the, the, the gen, general fear of something that's out there. And uh, for him, his legend is dissipating in this first film, so it needs to be brought back. So what he's effectively done is kind of set up Helen to seemingly commit atrocious acts so that people can then whisper about the things she did and then, as you say, whisper about him, King Arthur, in this scenario. There is an implication as well, although it isn't given the depth that it needed here, I don't think, um, but the that if people forget the horror of the things he's done more recently, they won't share the story in hushed tones between them and therefore they will also lose the memory of what happened to him in the first place. I I love I love the fact that he keeps he keeps talking about his and their congregation. Mm. And it My congregation. Yeah. It, it, it feels very it, it it does feel very religious and it feels very 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 ritualistic and I, I love it. It really adds another dimension to to this legend and to to this phantom hmm. or the man himself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and yet and Philip Glass's score does have a lot of organ in it. It does see, feel like it's there's a cathedral. It's almost all organ. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think you said it was what, like an organ, and what else was it? It's kind I of a, it in synth choral, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, there's a there's a choir, there's an organ, and like some guitar. Maybe it was like three things, and the whole score is just those three mm. things. And there's yeah. a particular theme which uh, ends up in the uh, new movie. It's just called Helen's theme. That is so haunting and. Even more so now. It's the diddle diddle ding. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, just it's it's got a like it will abide with you. And certain things are unsettling and uncomfortable about this film, and and thus totally worth seeing up until now, and now even more so because the new one makes the old one better. After her friend is horribly butchered, Bernadette R.I.P.D. Helen is committed to an asylum for apparently a month. And this is something that uh, uh, Kim Newman pointed out as well. Uh, like, we get a shot of this baby who is definitely still alive and is sort of, it's, it's in this dark cavern that, uh, you know, between the walls in an abandoned building uh, that uh, Helen found her way into. And there's this um, very striking image of the man himself's mouth yawning wide open and screaming. And the baby's there, and it's kind of like Kuchiku with a hook. Apparently, like, he's feeding the baby honey as well. That's bad. You can't give honey to a baby. <laughs> it has enzymes which are toxic to newborns. They haven't got the resilience yet. But At least not, not in the first year. Yeah, no. But apparently, yeah. kid's okay for a month. Again, this just feels like Helen should have been in there for a day, really. Well, I, let's, let's be fair. The candy... The the man, uh, <laughs> ah, it, it it is magical honey. I mean, it's not like he has regular bees inside of his magic chest cavity. That's true. Producing regular honey, it's magic honey. I'm sure it's fine for newborns. He hasn't got a newborns on the side in, making beeswax candles or anything. Exactly. <laughs> it's my artisanal website, right? Um, this this bit after be the my customer. <laughs> Tell everyone. 
Let's pause for a minute and let the Stephen Fry-looking guy who's in this film tell us the legend. Candyman was the son of a slave. His father had amassed a considerable fortune from designing a device for the mass-producing of shoes after the Civil War. Candyman had been sent to all the best schools and had grown up in polite society. He had a prodigious talent as an artist and was much sought after when it came to the documenting of one's wealth and position in society in a portrait. Well, it was in this latter capacity that he was commissioned by a wealthy landowner to capture his daughter's virginal beauty. Well, of course, they fell deeply in love and she became pregnant. Side note, this line from the car park scene has additional meaning given this context, which the writer-director may or may not have intended. But I'm late. Poor Candyman. Father executed a terrible revenge. He paid a pack of brutal hooligans to do the deed. They chased Candyman through the town to Cabrini Green, where they proceeded to saw off his right hand with a rusty blade. And no one came to his aid. But this was just the beginning of his ordeal. Nearby, there was an apiary, dozens of hives filled with hungry bees. They smashed the hives and stole the honeycomb and smeared it over his prone, naked body. Candyman was stung to death by the bees. They burnt his body on a giant pyre and then scattered his ashes over Cabrini Green. And then he comes back and commits bloody vengeance upon, in this movie, impoverished black people. That's what's baffling. I spent, like, most of the past ten years before this thing got made going, why isn't he haunting remade tenement buildings and gentrified now-white neighbourhoods and killing the white people there? And the new movie was so fucking satisfying in that regard. Uh, in just yeah. not, not satisfying in a yay way, but in a kind of, okay, you are totally on the right track now. Um, in terms of taking this muddled message and turning it into something much more from a black community point of view. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So uh, Helen is accused of being absolutely off her rocker. She uh, sees him in her, you know, hallucinations. The video cameras do not catch him. A psychologist, uh, Kim Newman pointed out that psychologists are required, especially in horror movies, to say that ghosts and magic and monsters aren't real. And this is all in your head. So we are, as horror viewers, predisposed to dislike and mistrust uh, psych workers, and that sucks. That really does. It does. Imagine how many well, people have not gotten therapy because movies have told pe- uh, them you will not be believed. And in this case, when you tell them the truth, 
uh, a revenant will turn up and murder them with a hook. The, the way that horror tends to portray the treatment of psychological conditions is... Electroshock therapy. It's, yeah. If it's, Brutally if it's not, applied for no reason. If it's not, psychologists will never believe you and, in fact, will continually tell you that everything mm. that you, you are seeing is bollocks. You'll be locked up forever it's, and lobotomised. Exactly. And it's just... It just... Please stop doing that. They, it's still, <laughs> yeah. it's going to be around for a while, and that sucks. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, her psychologist comes a terrible cropper, and he, the man himself, uses his hook to free her from her chair restraints, which uh, Newman compared to the bit in The Shining where Jack is let out of the refrigerator by ghosts. As in, it's the only thing. It's the that only thing. Definitively says yeah. she is not the one doing all of yeah, this. Yes, this is not a hallucination. It's not in her head. This is real. Also, he launches himself backwards out of the window in this fucking hilarious moment. Uh, as a kind of <laughs> my work is done here, but and it's it's supposed <laughs> to be terrifying, but it's hilarious. And you can see yeah. the cables. You can. So after that, psychologist gets murdered, mm-hmm. which is easily the most brutal murder I oh, think yeah. on screen they had to cut it by several film. seconds yeah I was going to say I think yeah. Rose said that like was you, the you only bit the MPAA really meddled mm. with yeah you watch him drag his uh, hook up the guy's back mm. like along his spine oh yeah it he tickles bad. his chest from behind exactly yeah <laughs> Exactly. It gives his heart a little bit of a hug. But, um, yeah, after that, I don't know. I can deal with a little bit of silliness. If anything, it's a bit of a release. Yeah. Yeah. That's a nice um, juxtaposition with uh, uh, the, the, the way that that is done in a far more satisfying denouement in 2021's film. So, uh, Helen... Gets her, like, runs back to Cabrini Green. She's doing this whole thing on foot in, in OR Scrubs. Um, finds the baby in the... No, wait, wait. Wait. Gets to that chamber that I mentioned before. Effectively goes into this Dracula castle, Phantom no. of the Opera... Oh, yep. Hold on, hold on, no. First, she goes back to her por- or her her apartment. Oh, yes. That's Shut up, you useless keep... piece of shit. Yep, yep. <laughs> no, right. Not you, Debbie, now you this, keep going. This specifically <laughs> was what I was going to refer to before. What Helen ends up doing here, she, she goes back to her apartment and has effectively, in the month she's been in the hospital... She has been forgotten. She has been replaced. And so everything that she does after this point is effectively doing exactly what Robitaille has been doing all this time. Nice. Remember me. You will remember me because of the things I do. Yeah. Stacy is the new Helen, basically. Mm. Yeah. And it's just, it's so seamless. Replaced by a younger model. Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, and like the thing that, the thing that I infer from this, and like, I don't think it's ever actually said in the movie mm-hmm. is the fact that I'm almost certain that Helen, you know, however many years prior, Helen was Stacy. Yeah. Like, a student. I, I yes. Yeah. She was very, I, I, I'm certain it's one of those, like another reason why it's like, well, what do you expect of this asshole? Like you, your relationship with him started the same exact way. Mm. Yeah, even if he was not already previously married at that point, 
it still indicates that he's the kind of creep that sleeps with his students. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he's a scumbag. And yeah. Madsen's performance here is actually really fantastic. She's the, the girl is terrified of her immediately. She thinks she's about to be murdered. And Helen doesn't really let her off the hook. She's like, you're going to yeah. call the hospital. In a kind of like, she, she, is, she is unbalanced. But you're not sure about her at that same point. She's got these wonderful green eyes uh, that um, uh, Virginia Madsen, like she actually got hypnotized during a couple of scenes when they were talking about um, the man himself. And it was hypnotized for real. And Virginia Madsen in an interview said, I am never getting hypnotized in another film ever again in production. But like that, those scenes are real when she's, um, she kind of becomes beatific in this moment of um, uh, abandon. Well, it it makes it really, it makes for a really unique way because Bernard Rose did not want to have the very stereotypical reaction from Helen of, Mm. you know, the screaming and the terror, like, Mm. He wanted it to be very different. And it does, like, not just there, then the fact that, again, for a lot of the movie, you're not entirely sure is this all in Helen's head. Like, you're, you're, like, they're playing very much with the nature of, the nature of perception. Yeah, even when um, the man himself removes the uh, shackles from her, that could still be like one of those Pan's Labyrinth moments of we don't expect you to really zero in on this moment until maybe later when you uh, re-examine it. You're still uncertain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And it's and and it plays with that when in the the this the scene with with the her her asshole husband ex however you know whatever I mean things are done clearly at that point but and and his new his new tryst is the fact that like you're not sure even though you know you it has been confirmed the man himself is real like this is all like 100% we know this as an audience like you're still not sure as an audience what Helen's going to do in this scene she could go after this woman she could start crying her eyes out like yeah it's so subtly and beautifully played by virginia madsen that like you truly are not sure mm. then she uh then helen goes back to cabrini green and confronts the man himself in his lair and this is one of the best scenes in the film because it's it sort of it lays down what his um their chemistry as you said before she reminds him of it is implied the girl that all this happened to him because and there's almost a kind of a resentment there in him like you know you got to carry on with your life and then you married some rich white guy and then died at some later date nowhere near the kind of trauma i went through but i became this so that, but there's a tenderness there as well. So I really wish they'd explored this uh, because it, it gives him motivation. It gives him complex feelings about her, and so much of that is just inferred from Tony Todd's behavior. I was like, can I say Tony Todd? I can say Tony Todd. <laughs> yes, his behavior towards her, his speaking, his strange affection for her, but at the same time, the terrible things he does to her, he loves and hates her. 
and they were they were they did ballroom dancing so that they could work on the chemistry they had together and they both pull it off so well they're kind of drawn to one another it's almost as though he if if everything that he does is to make people talk about him mm. so that they will talk about the tragedy of what happened to him mm. but they they don't talk about her, as in the girl he fell in love with in the first place, mm. then the root of the story, which is that these two people fell in love despite the the circumstances around them that would, would normally prevent that. Mm. If he brings Helen into the story, then she gets remembered as well. The fact that somebody loved him. That, that is that reading and giving a lot more to to this story than I, I think it deserves. I am reading this into Tony Todd's performance, Bingo. not to yeah. Bernard Rose's writing. And he's fantastic, <laughs> yeah. by the way. Check out any interviews with him he, you can find. He just he is so philosophical about everything. He, he he's a fantastic mm. guy, and um, yeah. it brings me great frustration and sadness to say that during this scene, it was going to go further by like four minutes. They were going to kiss. The studio were uncomfortable with an interracial uh, relationship ah. in 1992. Yeah. Motherfuckers. Those assholes are the problem that this movie is talking about. Mm. Well, they yeah. are most definitely something that plays into 2021's uh, film too. Uh, but... Bernard Rose apparently wanted I mean, to do a sequel that was actually a prequel and was all about Robitaille and I think her name's Caroline, um, their relationship. Yeah. They totally nixed that, hence we ended up with Farewell to the Flesh instead. Yeah, just take him to another yeah. city entirely so he's not tied to this place. So the scene in the lair, though, when Helen is covered in the bees and whatnot, mm -hmm. I just want to give a quick shout-out to Dr. Norman Gary. Oh, yeah, the, the bee wrangler. wrangler on this film. Yeah. <laughs> He is the person who figured out how to use bee pheromones to get them to move where he wants them to move and to mm -hmm. be where he wants them to be. To be so. where he wants them to be. <laughs> yes. He also uh, said to Tony, um, give them names. Say, that one's uh, Steve the Bee, and that one's uh, Dennis the Bee, and that one's and Molly the Bee. Because then Eric if you're like, hey, how's it going? Um, Edward Appleby. Uh, <laughs> Um, because then you're not terrified. They were fine. The studio were fine with filling a black man's mouth with bees, but he couldn't kiss a white woman. Yeah. He couldn't I mean, fill his mouth with Virginia Madsen's tongue. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Head on desk. Yeah. Poor Tony Todd. And what a fucking, you know... Like I, I don't want to say trooper because James Cameron used that repeatedly mm. in uh, The Abyss. True. You should not treat your 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 actors like they're soldiers obliged to do you terrible things treat for you. Your soldiers like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. From everything I've seen about the movie, like it sounds like in general there were may have been a couple of issues, but that he was a really good director and he hmm. was concerned about everyone's comfort and like he yeah he would occasionally just get a bug up his ass and be like all right we're gonna tony you're going to scare the shit out of virginia don't tell her you're about to stick your hand through a mirror oh right and apparently apparently that like yeah virginia did not know they were going to do that so her reaction to that is 100 percent genuine what could possibly go wrong with uh tony todd smashing a hook through a mirror yeah. right in front yeah. of Virginia Madsen's face when neither of them can see each other. 
Yeah. <sighs> and apparent, but apparently, like Tony Todd was felt really, really bad about that, and he like he apologized to her profusely for that. Yeah. So, like by all accounts, he is an absolute professional and just a prince of a human being. Yeah. The uh, commentary um, was. Uh, Bernard uh, had Tony there as well and that's why they were talking so much about this and that and I was like this is really good and then they started talking about Bill Cosby and Kevin Spacey and they were like well apparently you can't talk about these guys anymore and, and, and it was like oh my god shush boomers shush go back to the movie or like talk at least about how like they kept talking about how there were rumblings of a remake and they were they were both kind of you know they're just going to remake it it's just going to be some young big titted white girl and it's like you like this was this was after a quiet place so this was really recent and it could have been so like that, and it wasn't. They, I am so they did glad. talk about Jordan Peele yeah. briefly, so it, it was obviously after Get Out came out, but before mm. the remake had been attributed to Peele. That's commentary that like comes out in 1997, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, Helen is given a ultimatum to the child's life for her own. And she elects to die to save the child, which, again, makes us really like her. Like, she's been given all of this chance to just run away, and she really wants to make things right. And then she ends up inside a bonfire that's being lit by the neighborhood. And by the way, a big bonfire was in the Forbidden, the Clive Barker story. And that makes perfect sense because it was Guy Fawkes Night in England. I don't oh. think Americans have that. Do you have like a no. big bonfire that everyone stands around and looks at? Well, no. There, well, what? there is apparently in, and this is, I mean, this is Chicago, so it's not Michigan, but mm. apparently... I believe on they they celebrate Devil's Night, which is I believe either the night in Detroit, yes, in night Detroit, before Halloween, night before Halloween, and yeah. I believe bonfires on that night are common. Right. Yeah. So there there is a very localized tradition of that, but okay. in general, no. Other yeah. than that, in no. Jake saw the hook as Helen was going into this pile of trash that mm. has just collected because they have terrible uh, services at Cabrini Green at mm. that point and basically convinced people the man himself is in there let's kill him right now right so, so this wasn't a celebration thing this was a we are going to take out this terror this terrible force we've hunted him down is, to a corner and now we're going to burn him yeah, exactly. Okay. So they are collectively trying to expunge him from their neighborhood. Again, that doesn't yeah. necessarily gel with um, the the second film or film two. But, I mean, it, it kind of makes sense insofar as if this is what he's doing, ripping kids' dicks off, apparently. Like, that's the that's the yeah. word on the street. And, and if, if that's what everyone's saying, they don't want you in this neighborhood. Um, preying on the most innocent, the most vulnerable, taking babies away, cutting off dogs' heads. It does steer it very definitively away from the original story because the the way the bonfire is set up and portrayed in that, it almost feels like the Wicker Man. Like I said, he feels like a local god and this very much feels like a, a... Not not that they necessarily intend it as a sacrifice, but pretty much that, that this is a ritual going on to recognise them. Virginia Madsen should have shouted at him, Burning me won't bring back your damn honey! 
<laughs> yeah. I'm so sorry. Not the beast! <laughs> oh, my! Okay, so, here's what it gets to, though. The baby is in there with uh, Helen as well. She goes in to get the, the, the child out because it's, it's, he's crying. Uh, and then Candy... Mm, and then Robitaille turns up in a kind of, okay, this is exactly what I wanted to happen. You're going to stay in here with me. Our death will be exquisite and people will talk about you. And uh, th- this is going to he be... He has essentially assembled a nuclear family for yeah. himself to live on in legend. Yeah, yeah. replace, replace the, the woman and baby that he lost. But what she does is, uh, like, she gets angry. You lied to me. She gives him a stake through the heart because he's Dracula and then crawls out through the fire and the flames. Catches fire herself, shielding this baby all the way and gets him to the edge. And um, his mother, Anne-Marie's there and... Uh, she goes from "I hate this woman. She took, you know, she killed my baby." To "Oh my God, this woman saved my baby and gave absolutely everything." Because Helen then dies an Anakin Skywalker death of just the worst kind, just burning yeah. up in front of everyone. It's terrible and uh, you know, absolute agony. And again, we like her because she's trying to protect the innocent. And Cat <clears throat> Robotai screams and is like, no! And she's effectively beaten his evil machinations and he burns up. It's a little bit Freddy Krueger again. And uh, you could see how lazy people could turn this into a, yeah, let's make him a Jason or a Freddy or a Michael Myers and just have him being this recurring character. And uh, well, where, where's, where's he going to be this week? Is he going to be New York or somewhere cheaper? Vancouver. <laughs> well, and, and again, it, it cements like the fact that very, very consistently, and I think I think a lot of this is down to Virginia Madsen's performance, is the fact that, for however she may be naive, and and certainly she she is, but that she is she is always you know she is always coming from a kind place, mm. and she is she is always a genuinely decent person. Yeah. So this feels like a, a sad. A tragic ending, but also an uplifting triumph because, philosophically speaking, she's beaten him, mm-hmm. which she's makes preserved the innocence that was threatened. Um, which uh, then leads to a funeral with just the like, uh, the it's just her husband, his new chippy, and the guy who's That's the ultimate fuck you, isn't it? That he brings yeah. Stacy to the goddamn the funeral. Diet Stephen Fry's also there, but then this procession turns up of everyone from Cabrini Green who just silently file into the graveyard to pay their respects to this woman who saved one of theirs and uh, you know gave her life doing it. It's a little bit patronising, but at the same time, I like the idea that you're seeing them as a community who get together and do the right thing uh, and that's being conveyed to a largely white audience although this was huge with a lot of black audiences where the man himself became kind of a a notorious anti-hero there is also a slightly ritualistic feel to the procession and to the way that they they bring the hook to Helen and drop it into the grave and drop it into the grave and it almost feels like they are giving her a place with the myth. Hmm. So, yeah, yeah. she... Uh, so she will in, be remembered. Yeah. Mm. So, in a way, this also means that the man himself has succeeded in, in, in so far as um, there's a notoriety attached to Helen now. 
what shitty ass mortician didn't bother to put a wig on her? Yeah, Jesus. Yeah. They're like, like, uh, like seriously, it's it was clearly it was clearly she was dressed and made up in a way. So it was probably open coffin for the wig at least. Mm. And they didn't put a damn wig on her. Yeah. What the hell? Come on, this is your job. She it's looked like fun. she tried to put out a grease fire with her scalp. Yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it's grisly, but then that leads to an ending that would satisfy horror fans. I think if they just left it there and just sort of left on Helen's theme and just sort of like panned up and, and shown the city behind them, that's a level one existential horror ending. But instead they went for the aha ending, which I believe was actually reshoots because the audience was sort of melancholy afterwards. And you don't want a horror audience being melancholy. I don't know if it was yeah. actually reshoots. It was certainly a rewrite. That was yeah. not Rose's intentional uh, original ending, although I don't know what it was supposed to be. Okay. So anyway, um, shut up, you useless piece of shit. Trevor Lyle okay. is moping about the house in his bathrobe while Stacy's like, so do you want to like cook together or something? And they're clearly not getting on anymore. And then he's like, yeah. I'll be out in a minute. And she's like, fine. And she's like slamming the snake da- sh- the s- steak down and chopping it up. Steak tatar salad. That's what you're getting. Yeah, well, yeah. What the hell was she making? <laughs> <laughs> she has decorated the house like a teenage girl's bedroom, by the way. Mm, yeah. Well, I mean, and it's... apparently is allergic to bras. Yeah. Oh, my like, God, like, yes. Like, like, why, why does this scene exist? It, it's almost like if you're going to make me do this scene, then I'm going to make it as exploitative as possible. Mm. It's not kind to Stacy. I think, yeah, the, the whole point it's of It considers this that Stacy's to... a homewrecker and uh, she deserves everything she gets. Well, no, I don't think it's so much that Stacy deserves everything she gets as that Trevor is really regretting his life choices at this mm. point. But still, yeah. Trevor doesn't deserve what happens to him now because he's murmuring Helen's name uh, in the bathroom, in the dark, into a mirror and whereupon she appears and goes ha 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 holding a hook and then goes you know what's the matter like which is what she said when she turned up at the house and scared the crap out of them before and then she murders him with the hook and it's like so what philosophical victory did she win in revenge revenge yeah that's it and then takes like and this version of her definitely is not recurring in the uh, in in film two. So this bit, like you could chop this ending off entirely and have a way better film, even though it's actually really satisfying because then you cut to say, uh, Stacey and she's holding the uh, knife she's been cutting the steak with, which should have had at least some blood on it from the steak. Yeah. And yeah. she just yeah. goes like best horror movie scream. Ah! Credits. And it's like, that fun ending actually doesn't fit with any of the rest of the film. Yeah. Yeah. And there is, there is a slight hint, like you said, Stacy is the new Helen. There is a slight hint that the police are going to come round, find Stacy with a carving knife in her hand and Trevor dead in the bath and Stacy is going to get the blame. I don't see how this helps the man himself. No, neither do I. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to get my own being a revenant with blackjack and hookers. <laughs> uh, okay, so yeah, that's the end of the uh, first movie. After this music, we will be talking about the new film for 2021, which is now available to rent on YouTube, and we heartily recommend you see it, whether you've seen the first or not.
There's a prologue in this one, a period set prologue. A young uh, lad uh, who turns up later in the film, uh, much older, Coleman Domingo. Um, he's the uh, guy who works in the laundromat. Uh, and it's in 1977, and he's a young black kid. The first thing, the first words in the uh, movie are, um, show me your hands, and um, uh, stop running, or uh, stand still, show me your hands. And he's effectively acting out shadow puppets with little paper cutout puppet dolls of a cop and someone trying to run away from a cop. And just that gives us a looming specter of threat from the very beginning. He then walks through Cabrini Green in 77, past a parked cop car. They're looking for uh, a guy who's out there that they think has been putting razor blades into candy, which is something that uh, gets visually referenced in both the, the Forbidden and also the original film. So he goes to the laundromat, it's sort of a dark, quiet, lonely area, and then from this giant hole in the wall, someone steps through, they have a hook for a hand, although if you look carefully, it's a medical hook, it's the uh, little um, grabbing device for the most basic form of people who uh, only have uh, one hand or are differently limbed and need something to pick things up with, and he's wearing a sort of a long coat, and he's holding out candy offering it to this child and the child screams and then the cops outside hear that scream and then we get this intro sequence and we come back to this later but I'm going to talk about what happens later now uh, because it turns out that this guy was uh, a man named Sherman Fields who gave out candy to uh, kids and was um mentally challenged and didn't really it seems like the way he's behaving physically that at some point he had candy and he offered it to people and the people were very chuffed that he'd given them candy and he felt good because he'd given them something that they liked and he just saw that as everybody wins in this scenario and so he yeah. is giving out candy to the neighborhood kids razor blades got found in some candy specifically in a white girl's candy in a different place fingers pointed at Sherman and the cops were looking for him and he was hiding in the walls it go. seems to be suggested I believe that um, he worked in a candy factory oh right and and that that would be why he had candy that he could give out yeah and the fact that also should be mentioned I think that and maybe you said that Alex I'm not I, I'm not remembering exactly, but um, the fact that he is very clearly um, mentally challenged, and so it's, you know, he's, like you said, he just he's just trying to do a nice thing, but it, obviously, he doesn't have a very good grasp of, you know, social interactions and whatnot, and it seems like, like he doesn't really understand that, you know, context is everything, and, like, you know, at yeah. one, giving out candy at one situation may be fine and in others yeah maybe not the best idea yeah it goes back in many ways to intentionality in that daniel robitaille knew what he was doing and what he was risking and sherman fields did not yeah yeah sherman fields is very much portrayed as an innocent here and when uh coleman screams the white cops burst in there's a there's a a, a dark horrible moment where after the scream Sherman stops and sort of looks out and listens as though like trouble might be coming, but then there's silence. 
And then he goes back to his, would you like some candy? And then the cop starts, um, you know, thundering through the uh, uh, hallways and bursts through the door. And there's that sort of, that sense of they're coming, they're coming, they're coming, that threat. And that is most definitely there in this movie and in many scenarios of black horror. But And, and the fact that the interesting line of that said there is I saw the face of fear that day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the implication being that the face of fear is the cops. Yeah. And uh, they beat uh, Sherman to death. And I think he would have been given the name, the name of the man himself by the neighborhood. So like it would have been sort of conjured up and given to him, even if it was already floating around before. So he's kind of continuing the chain. And he is an innocent victim who gets absorbed into something bigger. And at, like this is a point in the film later on when it's like, oh shit, they're going there. Okay, right, we are actually straight up. What this was billed as was a spiritual sequel to uh, the original film. What it actually is, is a in-world follow-up to the film that not only um, references things that happened in the 1992 one, features characters that uh, were in the 1992 one, but take the confused story and the victims and the causes and points all the arrows in almost entirely the right directions, if that makes sense. It has been taken Uh and readjusted by uh, the writing team here. So while um, Barker wrote the short story, Bernard Rose expanded on that and turned it into uh, uh, something about class, which also encompassed race, and turned urban legends into much more of a kind of a horror movie thing rather than a Clive Barker sort of speculating on what you know, that there felt like there was something beneath the surface there this produced by Jordan Peele directed by Naya DaCosta and they the two of them wrote it together along with um oh uh, uh Will, Wynn Rosenfeld Wynn Rosenfeld uh, who is producer of the new Twilight Zone which is um also being overseen by uh, um Peele so they really knew what they were doing with this one we're introduced to uh, because this happened in the seventies, but we we come back to uh, to the now. Anthony McCoy, uh, played by um, Yahya Abdul Mateen II uh, from Aquaman, he was uh, Black Manta, and he wasn't wasn't given that much of like real dramatic weight to do in that film, and he gets a lot more here, and he can manage a level of intensity that's actually really frightening. As we find later. I'm going to say it now because it actually it informs upon yeah. the connections. He's the son of Anne-Marie McCoy. He's the baby from the first film. And we go back and we uh, meet with Vanessa Williams, who, who was in the trailer. And I, f- I feel like most people would have forgotten about her or just assumed she was someone that they asked about the things that happened in 1992. But it turns out she's his mother. And she didn't even hide his name she literally calls the baby anthony in the original uh film and says her name so if you watch the two back to back you'd actually and you were paying attention to that particular line you'd know who he was you'd go anthony mccoy okay so he's the baby then cool yeah i i I knew that walking into the film i'm like oh okay that's cool that's it's, it's the baby from the first one is our main character now nice i did not know that 
until oh. he goes to his mother's apartment mm. very near the end. Me neither. And I hadn't exactly expected it. I thought that it was something to do with... Um, we had rewatched the first one the day before we went. Yeah. Ah, we didn't. We actually waited to see the uh, uh, the first one until after both of us had seen the new one so that we could recontextualize the, uh, the new one. It's good because we're approaching it from two completely different directions. Uh, ultimately, Anthony has had a normal life and is not massively troubled, but he is... Uh, in, he is artistically motivated to talk about black pain, and his previous work involved uh, a very striking image of a noose around a neck with um, black fingers pulling at it, just to tell a very stark story of something that's indelibly part of America's history, but yeah. that white people would like us to forget. Um, what I liked about that particular painting is that the way the hands are, the noose is meant to look like a necktie. Yeah. And it's very much a commentary again on that intersection between race and class and how even a black man who is, you know, well-to-do and following in the sort of capitalist expectations of being a businessman, being somebody respectable in that quote-unquote respectable they are still they are still potentially victims. I feel you can never escape being black in America. Yeah. Like no matter no matter what you do, that will always that is what always is going to matter. And he talks to his, um, uh, not really agent, but the, the owner of an art gallery who's friends with his girlfriend, Brianna Cartwright. Brianna is a major character in this film. Uh, but uh, Clive, Clive, named after Clive Barker, uh, Clive Pivler and his girlfriend, Jerrica, they, I mean, at least Clive, owns an art gallery and has basically done a favor for his friend Brianna by giving Anthony space to put his art in with another display. And, and, uh, Clive is kind of encouraging Anthony to come up with something new. And he sort of says, Anthony says white supremacy and Clive corrects him casually in a kind of just white people um, way. And then kind of says that that has been played out. And that is a really fine example of left, but not very left, if that makes sense. The other really fascinating thing that um, Bernard Rose said on the commentary was the difference between, and he was actually quoting John Carpenter, there is a difference between right-wing horror and left-wing horror. Right-wing horror is there is something alien outside us. It's coming in to try to kill us. We must fight it. Oh my God, it's so scary. And left-wing horror is there is something bad coming from within. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And around about this same time, Bernard Rose uh, said, you know, and it's uh, a bit more woke to say. And uh, I think Tony Todd said woke in a kind of like... Did you say woke? This is a word that was uh, coined by the black community, taken by the white community, and then spun around by some members of the white community to turn into a slur. Usually as a, a bad faith argument of, oh, you're woke, meaning you say these things, virtue signaling, you don't really feel them. This uh, art gallery owner is a really good example of someone who will, because it's trendy, actually 
in like he will sort of say yeah let's well, let, let's express that we show compassion for the black community and then when it's no longer trendy or it just it's abiding and too many questions are being asked it's like can we move on from this please i don't wish you any specific harm i'm a well-wisher it's yeah it's it's not the the subject in its entirety that clive wants to steer uh, Anthony away from, but Anthony specifically mentions that he wanted to do some work about the South Side because that's the area he mm. knows. And Clive is like, well, the South Side's a bit played out. He's trying to, he's he's ostensibly giving him space to talk about the things that are important, giving Anthony space to talk about the things that are important to him. Within but then parameters he tram- of. He kind of tries to turn him away from it when that's not what he's got in mind. Yeah. So, yeah, the way this film is proceeding, it starts off with uh, Brianna um, and uh, Anthony hosting a small party for uh, Brianna's uh, brother, Troy, and his boyfriend, Grady, who I thought the way they handled this gay couple was fantastic in that they are um, clearly gay, but they're very different in personality. We like them. They're very conversational. And they're not they actually survive the movie. It's not like, well, there's gay people, so let's kill them. Mm-hmm. And uh-huh. at the, we're also like, they don't kill one of them to illustrate gay pain and, and kill your gays. They're, they're very relatable and affable and supportive of Brianna when things start to get really bad. Mm. There's also possibly a little <clears throat> grain of, so you wouldn't let Bernard Rose show an interracial couple? Would you like an interracial gay couple? Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, and also, like, I like the fact that there's a there's a little conversation between her and Anthony back after you know in the evening after after her brother and his boyfriend had left, mm. and she's like, "Man, I'm glad glad he's dating a regular guy instead of all of those fashion designer types." And Grady's a delight. I would love to have him at any party. He is very yeah. sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Anthony starts digging into uh, Cabrini Green. Um, like I said, the, uh, they 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 host a uh, a mini soiree and and they start talking about what Cabrini Green used to be. And Troy talks about everything that happened with Helen and the uh, the incident in 1992. But it ends up twisted so that the tale he was told is that Helen wandered out to the bonfire after kidnapping this baby and tossed the baby into the bonfire. And then the, the, the um, everyone tried to rescue the baby and they pulled it out and then Helen walked into the bonfire and died. That's It's sad that her, her self-sacrifice ended up as becoming that weird apocryphal tale. But of course... Anthony was that baby, as we find out later on. Yeah. It's not... The film is not about exonerating Helen as... Um, Coleman later says, you know, black people die every day in the hood. One white woman dies and it's in people's thoughts forever. And again, it's it's kind of like saying, should we refocus on the people of Cabrini Green instead for this uh, particular film? But they talk about, they immediately invoke the gentrification of this area. They spe- the Brianna specifically says that uh, the ghetto is something that the white man invented and then immediately wished he hadn't and uh that they're being effectively the, the the next step after they've moved black people away from the cities into this sort of inner city area is to cut off support and supplies and wait for it to die and then move everybody on and develop it into better housing and give that to white people and 
that's this strange infestation feeling about what's happening in Cabrini Green. It's it actually resituates the man himself as something that's been forgotten, but then as he gets invoked in this film and becomes something people talk about, he's now haunting an area of white people who have taken the land of the, the, the meager land of black people that they allowed uh, to live there and then muscled back out. I feel really connected to this neighborhood. Cabrini Green. It was the projects. I just moved in around the corner. The old candy factory. I'm an artist. You look up a candy man. He's the monster that's part of this neighborhood. Why are you drawn to this? I'm hoping to spread the story all about Candyman. The mirror invites you to summon him. You should say his name. I dare you. Candyman. 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 Don't say that. Candyman. I think I made a mistake. I brought him back. Candyman isn't real! Something's happening to me. He had a purpose for you to be another one of his terrible stories. I guess he found me. I am the writing on the wall. The sweet smell of blood. Be my victim. This is not real. It's not real. I think one of the things that really works about this film and recontextualizes the first one is that the man himself becomes a manifestation of black rage. He's the answer of why are they rioting in their own neighborhoods? Because yeah. it's not their neighborhood. It doesn't belong to them. It belongs to white people who live far away and exploit them through it. So Anthony starts to dig and uh, he starts to uh, find out more and he gets stung in the hand by a bee which just gets grosser and grosser and spreads <laughs> yeah. over his hand and up his whole arm and it, 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 it illustrates the rot that's there under the surface. The, the man himself is what happens when you don't talk about atrocity and you hide it, you paint over it and you just say, this didn't happen, moving on. Uh, yeah, it's played out. Let's move on. Yeah, one of the themes that came through really, really strongly for me watching this was the idea that horror is trauma or tragedy plus silence. It's when something terrible happens, but people can't talk about it. They aren't being given the the space to speak the truth about what's happened to them and, and that they've witnessed. They aren't being given the vocabulary to communicate it. They aren't given the communication tools to, <clears throat> to get it across. And there's a, a layered element of the various ways that this story gets told that I noticed in terms of 
if if you go even back as far as the forbidden, a short story communicates something purely in text, purely in words, and it's usually very uh, to the point and brutal because it's it's necessary to get to the point very quickly. But that's a very detached way of telling a story about trauma. Then you've got kind of the verbal storytelling element, the urban legend that gets passed around everybody. But that's a very detached way of talking about trauma and tragedy because every everybody twists it and adds a little bit and changes a little bit. And the, it's there's a lack of consistency to it. You can't yeah. get to the fact of something that way. And then if you look at the other storytelling um, methods that are explored in film two, you've got the... Uh, the shadow puppets that Coleman uses. Mm. You've got the uh, the graffiti that's around the estate itself. The writing got, on the wall. Yeah, you've got the uh, the painting on canvas that uh, first Brianna's father and then Anthony himself mm. uh, deal in. You've got the three D dioramas that uh, Anthony creates to try and um, communicate this. Uh, the the pain of what's gone on in this story. We we never know whether it's that he's tapping into the spirit of it itself or whether he is trying to put across his pre-verbal memories of when he was that little baby in in the the uh, the lair. Uh, it's probably a combination of both. But the point is, all of these methods of storytelling have. Um, it, it's it's almost like they're all giving one facet of it: text or performance. Or image, but not the whole, which is something that film is unique in that you can tell a story with film and you've got image, you've got sound, non-verbal sound in music, in soundscape, you've got uh, text in the form of the script... And then you've got the text in the form of the way the, the the script is communicated in the performances. It is such a multi-layered way of putting something across and it evokes something in us that I think no other art form really does because it's able to combine all of those elements. So you've got in this in this legend being told through all these different methods, both within the, the films and externally, as we watch it as audience members, it's covering this whole gamut of how these things can be told and they all come back to this tell it tell the story tell the trauma this is how you you deal with horror you talk about it you communicate it you express it yeah um absolutely and i think nia da costa really just uses all of those elements to such amazing effects in this particular film. Um, but I think Bernard Rose did a fine job, a very good job with what he did, but Nia DaCosta really just takes it to a new level Absolutely. when it comes down to it with this one. Yeah. Um, the subject of bees popped into my head while I was watching it. I was like, the sting, and like you could imagine the bee that stung Anthony was sent to him by the man himself. The force itself that the man mm-hmm. is party to. And I was thinking, why bees? I, I didn't want to think too much into it back for in 1992 uh, because I didn't want to credit Bernard, or uh, as I've watched the 92 version, I didn't want to credit Bernard Rose with thinking too deeply into it. I definitely didn't want to uh, uh, think about that with Clive Barker because his version wasn't about race at all. It was about uh, the poverty-stricken and uh, middle-class terror of them. Mm-hmm. 
there is a more overt analogy at work now, this time around. Bees are stolen from their homes. Bees are forced to work and held captive by beekeepers. The products of their labors are then stolen by the keepers who sell it and grow fat on the profits. And every so often you'll see an American newscast warning people of Africanized killer bees, much larger, more aggressive and dangerous than regular bees, making their way to where you live. And as William says in this, they love what we make, but they don't love us. Slavery gave way to uh, abolition, which gave way to how are we going to live alongside these people that we've treated so fucking terribly? And the assumption at the time was they are going to want to seek reprisal. They didn't. And that terror of we've done terrible things to them, they have every right to come back and hurt us for it, is absolutely part of white America's fears. It's why racism based on fear can percolate so bitingly for so long. It's, it's a case of othering and at the same time feeling like if somebody hurt me this much, I would kill them. That's what the, the Candyman myth- Oh shit, that was two. That's two, <laughs> That's two yeah. <clears throat> That's what the mythology of this should always have felt like it was representing. At the beginning, in the first shot of the Bernard Rose film, the first thing we see is bees, and then an enormous hurricane-like swarm flying directly at all of these nice, shiny, straight new buildings full of white people. I don't even know if he knew what he was doing there, but this new analogy turns that into, oh shit, what if they all come and start trying to live in our houses? The projects were where they were sent, and then the suburbs were where white people went to live so that they wouldn't have to live nearby. That's where the retreat was. Coupled with the fact that, much like The, the Shining, which is another example of grand gothic storytelling, it's on a place where bad things happened. The Overlook stands in for all of America. This is stolen land. There's so much blood in the soil. They stole it from one group of people, and then they stole another group of people to make life easier for themselves. And we are living with the after effects of centuries of that greed and theft and violence and murder. The man himself is referred to not as one man in this. This may have happened to Paul Sherman in the 70s, but it also happened in the 60s, the 50s, the 40s, the 30s, the 20s, the 10s but they're specifically name-checked by Williams. It moves in generational cycles, and then before that, going all the way back to Daniel Robitaille. But before that, it goes back further and further. When Tony Todd was talking about this, Bernard said, yes, well, it's, it's, it's sort of like, you know, we've, this happened throughout history. But he said it in a way as though to excuse it and like to end conversation, as opposed to, that's what this is. This is yeah. the whole damn hive. This is a recurring spirit of rage and frustration. It's a dismissal that says this is a thing that happens, not this is a thing we do and we have to stop doing it. Yeah. I had a harder time passing out the movie Us, which we still haven't done a show on, 
because there's a lot of specificity to what might or might not be symbolism. But like Jordan Peele's got a quirky odd sense of humour so it's, it's difficult to really tell. With this they are really straightforward, it is not a subtle point they're making. This is about atrocities visited on black people. It ends with, uh, you get the credits that drift over to the right and you get that haunting puppet show, Helen's theme playing, and these little puppets uh, from William who uh, um, has now died after going insane with grief and violence. It, it depicts crimes inflicted upon innocent black men over and over again. And each of the puppets comes back after being murdered and mutilated with a hook. And then they stand together. And then there's not just one of the man himself, but there are multiple the man himself. They all stand together. And then a f the silhouette of a fence, the chain link fence goes in front of them, but then the community arises behind them and they are very deliberately shielding their community. And I sat there hypnotized by this wonderful, sad, angry art and I've seen this film twice now and both times the entire stock of white people in our audience left the theater before it was even a minute into this. And I'm just like, racism! <laughs> <laughs> they fucked off, leaving me sat there on my own the first time, and then the second time around, Sharon was there. And there was a couple of people who were sat there going, did you like it? Yeah, I kind of liked it. Just, just chatting away, not fucking getting it. And I thought, I don't want to be part of this fucking civilization. The actual kills in the film refuse to oblige our horror whims. I think this is probably why our uh, British crowd were not particularly charmed by the film and occasionally just went to their phones. There's like a rising tension in every kill and just this music and the imagery just starts building up and it just rises to a crescendo and then cuts out. And then like it cuts out the sound, cuts out the picture, moves to the next area. So rather than seeing the details of a particularly messy kill, it holds back. Which actually the first one did as well. When, when uh, her friend was uh, horribly killed, we don't yeah. see that happen, mercifully. Yeah, Bernadette happens off screen, thankfully, yeah. We do get flashes of her afterwards yeah we get the consequences but yeah but, but consequences are not particularly satisfying for a horror audience what like a, a lot of the uh, in the, the sort of 80s and 90s uh the interest became in practical effects and i completely understand why like tom savini's a fucking genius as is greg nicotero uh but mm -hmm. um it's also a way of detaching yourself by going, look at that great makeup, as opposed to this person is being horribly killed. These are the last seconds of their life. Mm. And there's the the moment when the uh, uh, snooty critic, who was basically Bob Balaban in Lady in the Water, is like, well, yeah. you, you artists move into a gentrified area and then you leech off it. Um, that's actually a really good scene beforehand. Like she, she's she's snobby at the art exhibit, but then when she's interviewing him, there's a weird power dynamic going on where it's almost like she feels like um, she's sort of affording him a little power by allowing him into her home, and she she's got a great performance. But then when he leaves, she's killed before our eyes. But it's as as it's happening, the camera's panning out and out and out. She has clearly she's summoned him in the brilliant. bathroom. 
Um, and it's 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 like a beehive, or, or this this like the, like some of the windows are on in this in this apartment block, but she like th- there's no sound to it. But and you have to be looking closely. Her body rises up and is smeared across the window as, as she's horribly killed. It's not a satisfying kill. It's chilling. It's also mm-hmm. like watching a, like a, a a film on your phone. Yeah. This small white rectangle that's at a mm-hmm. distance. And doesn't give you much in the way of detail. Um, and I think there is, there's a lot being said here about, um, again, what I was saying about the, the different methods of telling a story. You can use certain types of detachment to actually increase connection. Because if you give somebody the raw tragedy as it happens right in front of them, they will shut off. Yeah. Uh-huh. Also, I had it brought, uh, it was mentioned in something I was watching, one of the reviews, which I thought was really interesting, is the fact, the fact that, number one, he dares her. He dares her to summon our titular character. Yeah. And it's very much kind of a, like, a black person basically being like, you want my art? You You get to participate in this just a little bit. Yeah, which is part of how they marketed the movie that I quite liked was they had this uh, standalone kind of room on the streets mm. and people could go in a there. Pop-up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a pop up. And uh, people could go into this room and say the man himself's name five times. And there's this whole horror light show where, you know, it's all mirrors on the inside and uh, he appears in the mirror and. You know, there's, there was a button that people could press if it got too scary and stuff like that. But it invited people to be part of the myth. And and it's very it's it's very clearly evoking the scene in the elevator, which is a bit later, mm. somewhat late in the movie, with yeah. Anthony's character, mm. which is the only one that which is the only jump scare that actually got the hell out of me. I, and I'll admit to it's when they did when they did that jump scare there, it that actually hit me. Mm. It's rare that um, a horror movie centers on a guy, uh, and it's, it's it was actually quite gratifying to see Anthony go through all the levels of vulnerability that women usually go through in these stories. Yeah. Well, yes. it also also it, I appreciate that they put him in his underwear because damn that man is fine. <laughs> that is an amazing ass. I, I am just astonished. I can't not think of that. Um, it it does also underline that thing about trauma being uh, horror being the traumas that we don't talk about because it, there is a distinct. Uh, tradition, for want of a better word, of men not talking about the things that have hurt them. Mm-hmm. The contrast of, as as part of, I think, the commentary on you know well-off black people or two well-off black people in this movie, is the contrast between the fact of um, the way uh, Michael. Is it the the owner of the laundromat? William. 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 The way William, uh, you know, his thing is basically, okay, fine. You are going to give us, you know, you are going to treat us this way. We are going to take and own this legend and make it our own and use it to our own advantage. Which, again, like that's, you know, violence... That kind of violence, while it may bring results, 
it also is very harmful. And so that's, you know, it, it is it is still a very destructive thing to do. And not to say not there is there's constructive uh, non there's constructive violence and non-constructive violence. And I think this definitely comes off as being non-constructive violence and not violence that does not really help further the cause. It's vengeance, not justice. Yes, exactly. Exactly, and as opposed to the contrast of the scene with um, yeah. with Anthony's mother, which is basically their way of handling this was, we do not talk about this, which is also not a healthy way to deal with this, mm. because all that does is kicks the can down the road for, you know, future generations, and, you know, it makes them, it means, you know... That a lot of them are not as educated as they should be about their past, and it like it also in general tends to perpetrate those crimes and those harms onto future generations and helps keep the cycle going. Yeah. I think it's interesting that um, Anthony Everyone grew up keeps on saying the interesting. I've definitely got to get that bit of wood ready. You're right. Uh. <laughs> I think that it's important to the story that Anthony was raised on the South Side. Because mm-hmm. if you'll recall, in the first movie, when Helen is talking to a custodian lady about the myth, she specifically says, well, I'm from the South Side, so I hadn't heard it, but I have a friend who grew up in Cabrini, in Cabrini Green, and she told me about this. Uh, Anne-Marie, basically, after this, as soon as she could, she took Anthony as far away from that story, from that legend as possible, to a place that they have not heard of the man himself. And he was raised there, and even though there is... The first movie implies that, you know, Helen's legend will live on among at least the people who live in Cabrini Green... The fact of the matter is that it didn't, and Anne-Marie, at least, has done her best to make it disappear. And so that uh, the idea of the boogeyman that needs to be talked about uh, so that his legend can live on, which is a little bit of an uh, immature on the surface as a, just a surface level reading, deepens and deepens as the, the it becomes that he is the pain, he is the tragedy, he is the violence vested upon the innocent. And as you said, if you don't talk about it, it happens and happens and happens and and becomes excusable. That's why Black Lives Matter matters. That's why like the Me Too movement matters. That's why taking a knee for sportsmen as a public act matters. And complaining about that action is capitulating with the system of violence that works against them. When it's like, now is not the time to talk about this. No, now is the time to talk about this. Because for you folks saying, don't talk about it now because it's not convenient, it's never going to be the time to talk about it. Yep. And keep politics out of X is itself a political act. It is refusing to allow progress. That's political. Everything's satirical. This is fucking 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 political. Everything's satirical. This is
Skunk Anansi there being punk as fuck. So, um, the Brianna's father, that thread, I was a little confused the first time because it felt like that was leading somewhere. But uh, what, it ten- what it actually turns out is um, she, and she mentions this to her brother, having to go and uh, uh, clean up their, uh, their father's old things. Uh, he would appear to have committed suicide when, in front of her when she was a child. I was wondering what that was leading to, but it just comes down to what uh, her brother tells her, which is that she's kind of grabbed hold of Antony as this brilliant artist like her father who has an air of tragedy about him like her father and she wants to keep him alive and going and keep and support him and it 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 gives her like she's a gothic heroine in that scenario she has tragedy in her past and she's uh, affected emotionally as a result of that tragedy by these proceedings. Mm. He also yeah. gives the power of three to the idea that if we put all the weight on talking about tragedy on artists, mm. then they will keep breaking breaking under the weight of it. So you've got Anthony, you've got William, who does his puppet shows mm-hmm. and verbally tells the story of the man himself and... Brianna and uh, Troy's father. Unless we forget Robitaille, the artist. Yeah. I think a lot of this movie was left on the cutting room floor. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. it, it feels like there are a lot of threads that just don't get explored. Um, there was I'd a like bit near the, the end with cut. William in the dark tunnel that I was that, that I was like, it's going slightly off the rails, but then it resolved itself with like a, like a I described it like a sledgehammer with dark magnificence. <laughs> But yeah, yeah. That, that that did feel like they were kind of shortening. It's a, it is a brisk yeah. ninety minutes. Yeah, there's that very very abrupt uh, shift from Anthony to Brianna as the protagonist. Yeah, yeah. and yeah, I just it it's one of those I really want to see a director's cut of this. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, with Doctor Sleep, be... there was definitely more going on there. In, in... But it, it's yeah. also in the very fact that there are threads to this story that have have by necessity been cut short makes the point that there are multiple stories out there mm. that get cut short, that we that don't get resolved, that don't get explained away. Also, the trend this year appears to be giving us two and a half hour movies because everyone wants the most bang for their buck. <laughs> so 90 minutes, I'm all for it. It is a wonderful film that, uh, I keep saying wonderful, it's so painful to watch. <laughs> And I, I can understand audiences who aren't concerned, uh, feeling like they're being lectured to or feeling like this isn't their thing. On that note, let's talk about how this all ends. Brianna's on the trail to try to find Anthony, who's uh, he's falling apart. He paints these incredibly angry, vivid pictures of the faces of these four mutilated men who are the ones who have preceded him in this chain he is becoming the fifth in this particular line which again goes uh-huh. way back before Robitaille their faces are ob- obfuscated and uh, indistinct because they are symbolic rather than in individual at this point they are becoming a uh, something collective and their identity is being uh, erased and unless you specifically remember their names and the circumstances of their brutal deaths they simply become part of this dark legend sort of, you know, working back through it. But that is 
also how the man himself is portrayed or the men themselves are portrayed in this. It is a, a legion. It is a gestalt entity. It is a collective of trauma and rage. <clears throat> yeah. And uh, William is suddenly really leaning into this. The, uh, the actor seem, seems to go off the deep end very fast. One contributing factor is, uh, flash, like, first off, he saw this poor man beaten to death, which is enough to traumatize anyone, then couldn't possibly have been given uh, decent um, therapy through that. And then uh, his own brother, uh, when he was a kid, was also killed in a bathroom while summoning the Sister. man himself who then turns uh, up and practically winks at William uh, in the form of uh, Sherman. And it just, th this, again, is one of the only... Like, it's not exactly a bum note, but it's troubling because it's almost like a revenge killing. Like, well, you got me killed, so that's your brother, or this is part of the legend. Sister. 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 Jesus. Okay, so... um. But there's also uh, a series of, of white girls in a, in a bathroom who sort of invoke it. And then there's a slaughter in this school. And they're also noted as being very specifically uh, horrible to the one black girl who doesn't have a particularly fantastic time, even though she survives it, because she has to bear audio witness to this horrendous mass murder, which, yeah. again, the details are hidden from view, and we get a lot of sickening sounds and some stuff which seems like it doesn't quite obey the laws of physics, which ties in with the magic and the spell and the invocation. And But then, suddenly, because white girls have been killed, everyone's freaking out. Mm. There are elements of both of those uh, anecdotes, if you like, that does kind of speak of the, the trauma that comes from just having to bear witness to that kind of event. Yeah. Uh -huh. And Brianna goes looking for Anthony, thinks that William might know where he is, uh, Does finds him uh, by sl very sleuth-like by finding a pen that Anthony used and uh, taking that, that taking her to a laundromat. It's so quick, you'd almost miss it, but she goes to the back looking for William and is sensible, opens up the doorway to a set of stairs descending into a dark basement and goes, nope. And they don't play it like a comedy moment. It's just a little quiet, nope, not going in there, room full of yeah. nightmares. But then, uh, like I say, William seems to have sort of turned into this sort of th this crazed priest where uh, Anthony's completely lost it and is practically catatonic. And he saws his hand off in, in the church from the original um, and then puts a hook on. And they really kind of like, this is the bit that I feel like they kind of rushed to get the film done. Phones the police saying that Anthony's running around killing people with a hook. And just phoning the police is enough to make a chill fill the room if you've been paying attention to the yeah. news for the past yeah. few years. Just the idea of they're coming, it's like there, there is no way that we are going to stop somebody getting killed at this point. There's a quote from the first film, which is Helen uh, on a dictaphone talking about her research mm. into the, the incidents. And one of the things that she says is that the people of Cabrini Green don't seem to want to get the police involved, whether that's due to some kind of twisted loyalty or fear of the police, I'm not sure. I think it's fear well, of the police, I, lady. It, yeah. It, yeah. It's, um, and the thing is that, keep in mind that in 1992... Um, that was, of course, the year of the Rodney, Rodney King. King. Yeah, yeah, and um, uh, the sort of mainstream, and by mainstream I mean, in this case, white 
uh, population of America was starting to get the idea of the fraught relationship between black America and the police to the point that um, it was even starting to hit specifically black sitcoms. Mm. Um, I remember there's an episode of uh, Martin, Martin Lawrence's old sitcom. Mm -hmm. that they're having like plumbing problems and a plumber comes in and ends up having a heart attack. So now they've got a dead white guy on their bathroom floor and they're trying to, and the entire episode is them trying to call the police to get them to come Mm. And the police won't come because it's a clearly black neighborhood. And by the end of it, they sort of decide that maybe that's for the best. Whoa. Like there's even there's even a segment where the 911 operator is quizzing them on what's the American pie? What is the American sandwich? Stuff like that mm. to see how white they are. As naive, sheltered well-to-do white people who grew up away from this level of anxiety and personal danger. We now know through recent events and social media that deliberately calling the police is oftentimes inviting violence rather than safety. They're not about de-escalation. They are, in effect, chaotic hitmen that you dial for. Like a pizza or an Uber, only you want someone killed. The police do come, as uh, uh, William, who is now dead, uh, uh, had hoped, and they do kill Anthony, who is, like I said, catatonic and uh, close to death himself, after Brianna has um, almost rescued him by killing William. And he is the, uh, the innocent blood that's been shed again. And then there is a very slow, very deliberate, concerted conversation between a set of eyes on a white cop with just this really frightening demeanor. Like he's got this kind of bald head, long beard, looks like he's a fucking survival nut. Like everything yeah. that, sound, that feels terrifying about someone who has specifically chosen this job because of what it allows them to do without consequence. Yeah, he puts on ill-fitting fatigues that he got an Army Navy surplus store on the weekends and yeah. goes and drinks drinks with his buddies in the woods and shoots at random shit. You know yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. he uh, he describes to her um, that she's either going to play ball and, uh, and say that uh, his buddy uh, shot a, a hook-wielding maniac who was coming right for them, uh, or she's an accomplice and, uh, you know, you'll get sent to jail. And, you know, God knows what's going to happen to you at this point. And it's very much a, you'll do as we say and we absolutely know you'll do as we say and we will face no repercussions for whatever we do to you and it's fucking bone chilling and this is where she allies herself with the monster this is uh, an almost del toro moment of her saying can i see myself in the rearview mirror like the entire audience knows exactly what's going to happen but she says it four times and he says questioningly the fifth time just to kind of make it perfect and then Anthony, or something that is using now Anthony, returns and carves up several white cops. Again, it's slightly off camera, and it's only satisfying in that we know this is happening. It's not shot in a salacious manner. But it's done in a way that is very deliberately supposed to bring relief to an audience of those sympathetic with black people who have been paying attention. He is now effectively a protector and a defender and a doc. Like, he's he's Luke Cage 
supernaturally powered and very angry. He's Killmonger. Yeah. Uh, well, Robitaille is probably more Killmonger in the sense that he doesn't care who gets in his way. Yeah. But I think I think that was the connection that I made immediately. You know, we're going to kill our oppressors and their children and their families. Yeah. There's a despair about it, but a strange kind of sense of, of justice being wrested from the jaws of something very powerful that is dead set on injustice. Uh-huh. Very much the message of sometimes violence is the thing that will that needs to happen to bring about change. Yeah, and uh, and and that's where the uh, film ends. I know that that is going to resonate like crazy with some people and going to freak other people out and leave other people just kind of cold, like unreactive to it. But for me, I was like, okay, you have actually steered this to the point where candy men is what we end on and we don't technically need anything else in this particular mythology this was powerful enough to give us the story that it always should have been so he goes from killing white babysitter to the thing that is actually a genuine threat but it seems to me that the thing he's trying to engender is not specifically violence and aggression and certainly not random violence and aggression but talk tell everyone those are the last words of the film and tony todd comes back to embody this force for this last moment and it's uh it's a very um professional classy thing to do because he would have overshadowed proceedings otherwise but uh his words to Brianna are tell everyone to illustrate don't let them sweep this under the carpet don't let them paper over this don't let them tell you uh, can we move on and that's the only way that is the only way we can Hmm. you know like deal with the awful things that have happened in our past deal with you know like the horrible things in the, in some cases current people but specifically in the case of slavery our ancestors did and the fact the only way that we can even begin to address this and handle this in a in a reparative way is to talk about it yeah school of movies maintains its existence thanks to patreon and everyone on there who supports us And our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Aldridge, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksh, Marty Huey, Matthew Webb, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, 
and Valencia Burns. I just, yeah, I would also like to mention, by the way, everybody go and read an article on a website called The Undefeated. The article is Candyman and the Genesis of a Haunting, and it's by Tananarive Jew, who is a... Uh, an author and film historian who specialises in black horror. She teaches a course at UCLA called The Sunken Place, which is about Get Out, and she's uh, she's written a piece on the the new film, which really is is definitely worth going to read, to, specifically to get a black viewpoint on this, which we are as previously mentioned, unable to provide. Yeah, she and uh, uh, I think it's her partner uh, yeah. are on the Arrow video in an uh, interview where they decode uh, Candyman and talk about how they'd like to see it made like this in the end, but uh, but also how like they're, they're, they're very non-combative and much less less than we are because they're trying to get white people to go, oh, okay, and, and, and get, them, get more allies with honey than with vinegar. And... Um, <laughs> And yeah, yeah, she's she's fantastic. I think she's actually uh, exec producing the uh, or, or part of the production team of this Twilight Zone as well, moving forward. So really looking forward to uh, uh, everything else that uh, she's uh, part of. Folks, before we close out, uh, to our guests, would you like to tell the listeners where they can find the work you're proudest of? You can always go to sequentially-yours.com and check out some of my older videos. I haven't done any video production in a while, but... Um, I am very proud of the stuff that I did do um, back then. Or if you check out ghoulishmedia.com, you can see some of my uh, writing that I've been doing recently. I'm hopefully going to be starting a new series on that pretty soon. I'm just trying to get a couple of things, you know, in the queue before I actually start releasing them. And you can find us on Twitter. Um, that's definitely the social media where we are most active. Um, Karu Nagisa and find myself at uh, Debbie Morse. Feel free to engage, of course, as always. Uh, satisfy Alex here. Like, if you know, I, I, as major place I live on Twitter is cat Twitter. So, you know, if you ever want to show me pet pictures, the answer is always. So, yes, I want to see your fur babies. Always, always, always. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you both for sticking with us for this one. We will be back next week with Interview with the Vampire. Until then, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And tell everyone.